May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I would like to begin my homily this morning by reading an excerpt from an essay that the Presbyterian minister and novelist Frederick Buechner wrote a number of years ago titled, To See is to Love and to Love is to See. I preached all one winter long at a church in Manchester, a Baptist church the minister of which had left, and they hadn't gotten a new one. My job was supposed to be just preaching. The pastoring part and all the other things that go on in churches was done by other people. One day, I was shaking hands like my old friend George Buttrick used to after the sermon and saying the usual amenities, exchanging the how-do-you-do's when one old woman came out of that church whom I had never noticed before. Sallow, hollow-chested, grim-looking, and I said, how are you? And she said, I'm just as well as can be expected. I'll always remember those words. They were not the expected words, and somehow those words made me afraid. I could not help but fear for her faith And even though my arrangement was not to do anything but preach, I thought I can't not go see somebody who says merely, I'm as well as can be expected. So I went to see her and I dreaded it because I thought there would be tears and it would last too long. And she would tell me all of her troubles and I would not know what to say. I wouldn't be able to help her. What can you do? for a lonely old woman. But none of those things happened. Instead, I fell in love with that old woman and I went to see her, not for her sake, but for my sake, year after year for about seven years until one St. Valentine's Day, she died. My life was enriched by her. I experienced love and I was able to love her too, all because I happened to see her face by grace, by grace. I didn't think I'm a minister. I'm supposed to be good to people. I didn't. Quite the reverse. I wanted to distance myself from anybody whose need I thought was answerable by me. But I couldn't help myself. So sometimes we see the people around us. Sometimes we hear them. I heard her as she spoke. But to love means to look and to listen. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't see people because we choose damn well not to see them. So what does it mean to see each other in love. And what does that have to do with our journey through Lent? Those are the two questions that I would like to answer in this short homily. 
Allow me to suggest to you an answer to the first question, that to see each other in love is quite simply to see each other as Jesus sees us. Which is to say, to borrow language from that marvelous television show, Friday Night Lights, with clear eyes and a full heart. In seeing us with clear eyes, Jesus does not pretend that we are anything but the broken creatures that we are. Often selfish, at times petty or jealous, frequently judgmental, many times fearful, and plenty insecure. But in seeing us with a full heart, Jesus sees us with a kind of love that exceeds all requirements of love as we usually experience it in our own lives. And he extends his inexhaustible grace to us in our hour of need because it is his everlasting pleasure to do so with people like you and like me, broken but beloved. To see is to love, and to love is to see, writes Frederick Buechner, and Jesus, of course, shows us what that means. He sees people in love, and he loves them by seeing them, really and truly seeing them. He sees Peter in his brutish ways, running people over by the strength of his overbearing personality. He sees James and John, how their intemperate zeal causes them to want to rain down hate on those who have rejected Jesus. He sees Judas in his obsessive anger against the Romans, a kind of anger that consumes and distorts him from the inside out. He sees Martha. He sees how she is paralyzed by her anxiety and blind to what would actually be good for her in the moment. He sees Nicodemus in his pharisaical cowardice. He sees Zacchaeus in his shame. In Luke 7, Jesus sees the widow crying for her dead son, and the text tells us his heart goes out to her. In John 11, Jesus sees Mary weeping, and he weeps with her. In Luke 8, Jesus sees the woman with the issue of blood. He sees her in her utter helplessness, and he does not stop her from being seen by a crowd of people whose instinct would be to shame and to shun her. But Jesus does not shame her. He does not shun her. He sees her in love. Jesus sees that we too are like the people he encounters all throughout the Gospels, defensive, despairing, lost, tired, weak. And as with all those people, he too sees us in love. He sees that we are like sheep without a shepherd. He sees that we are broken by the cruelties of this world. He sees that we are but dust, frail, and so very incapable of saving ourselves. And his sightful love always compels him to act in love, to embody it somehow. Jesus sees us in love, but he also invites us to see each other in love, which is, of course, 
easier said than done. In some cases, we do not wish to be seen in that manner. During my early years as a pastor, it felt important to me that people perceive me as strong. If they saw me this way, I thought to myself, they would trust me to be a reliable pastor capable of doing my job. Like Thomas the Tank Engine, I wanted to be seen as infinitely useful and productive. If they asked me how I was doing, I would just say, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And I'd say it in an upbeat manner and turn quickly to inquire after their own well-being. I might here and there share a vulnerable story from the pulpit, but the pulpit, of course, kept me at a safe distance from the congregation. It's easy to share stories up here. Up close, I was less inclined to fully self-disclose. I had been deeply hurt years previously, and I struggled to trust others easily. One Sunday between services, I was walking down the aisle on the way to take care of the kinds of things that pastors are always taking care of in order to keep the small things from turning into disastrous things like sound systems and thermostats and snacks. And one of the elders at the time, Steve Regadolf, stopped to say hi. And I said, hi back. And he said, how are you? And I and I, I, I didn't know what to say. And my instinct, of course, was to say, fine, and move on. Because I had been to church long enough to know that that's what you can say in order to escape the moment. But I don't know if it was my conscience or the Holy Spirit or a moment of utter desperation, but it derailed that instinct. And I wasn't sure what to say to Steve. Eventually, I said, I don't think I'm okay. I think I'm burned out, and I think I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that out loud. But it's the God's honest truth. I'm tired, Steve. I'm really, really tired, and I don't know how to stop myself. Steve put his hand on my shoulder, and God bless him, he said the right thing because God knows how many times we say the wrong thing to each other, and we dread saying the wrong things to each other. He said, David, we love you here, and we know how much you love us too, and I know you want to do right by us, but if you let yourself burn out completely, you will be no good to anybody, let alone yourself. After a moment, he added, we want to come alongside you, David, and we want to help you not to burn out if you'll let us. We're with you. We're for you. We're here. And I can't tell you how powerful those words were to me at the time. We're with you. We're for you. We're here. I finally felt not just desperate enough to tell someone the truth, but also safe enough. Steve's words became the grace of God to me, and I began to ask for the kind of help that I needed not to burn up in the name of Jesus. And I received the kind of help that would enable me not to hide these compulsions and insecurities from the very people who could love me into a healthier way of being a human being and a pastor. Hiding from one another, of course, comes rather naturally to us as human beings. 
It's what sin caused our primordial parents to do, to hide. And in hiding from God, it made it easier for them to hide from each other and even from their own selves. If I could restate Alexander Pope's famous line from his 18th century poem, it would go like this. To see is to love, to hide is human. But to keep hiding in these ways invariably keeps the grace of God from reaching down into those very mangled places in our lives, those places that seem so intractably broken that we despair of ever overcoming them. Such hiding is what keeps the grace of God from finding us where we most desperately need it to find us. But brothers and sisters, this is precisely what the cross of Jesus asks us not to do as we begin our journey through Lent. It asks us not to hide. For the cross is that one place where we ought not to hide because it is that place where God extends to us the grace which alone would rescue us from the tyranny of sin. The cross is that one place where we ought not to hide because it is the place where God exposes in his mercy the truth of our condition, which is what? It's that we are far more broken than we ever suspected, far more selfish or nagging or greedy or lustful or fickle. But the cross also shows us that we are far more loved than we ever dared to imagine. That there is grace beyond measure, a mercy without limit, and a compassion beyond our capacity to comprehend for you, for me. And one of the many gifts that Lent would offer to us is practice in unhiding so that we can more fully receive the grace of God in our lives. It's what we get to do with each other over the next seven weeks. So what does that mean for us practically? Well, it doesn't mean that we sensationalize or become exhibitionists of our broken lives with each other. We don't become like Lucy with Charlie Brown, presumed therapists on the spot with one another. It does mean, however, that we choose not to hide as much as possible. It means that we let ourselves to be seen as we are, not as we wish we were. It means that we receive one another's stories of brokenness with empathy. Now, wisdom will, of course, guide how we self-disclose, whether we do so in the moment or in a small group or with a trusted friend. And I know that the pastors here at Church of the Cross would feel deeply honored if you unburdened yourself, if you disclosed yourself to them. And we have this practice of the confession of sin that we'll be doing all throughout Lent on Wednesdays. I encourage you to take advantage of it. It's one of the most powerful and freeing and cleansing things that I have ever done in my own life. But wouldn't it be amazing if Church of the Cross got the reputation for being the place where people, to borrow Frederick Buechner's language, did give a damn about seeing each other in love? And in becoming a people who saw each other in love and loved each other by really seeing one another as the broken creatures that we are, I think we would surely find ourselves experiencing afresh the incomprehensible love of our crucified Savior who by his Spirit reaches out to us 
again and again and again with grace upon grace upon grace. So here are my questions in conclusion. What grace might God be giving you this season of Lent to see the people around you in love? What grace might God be giving you this season of Lent to let yourself be seen in love? To whom might you disclose yourself? And to whom might you become the grace of God in this season of Lent? Dear friends, as we begin our journey through Lent today, it is my sincerest prayer that God would pour out his grace upon each of us here to let ourselves, like the woman with the issue of blood, to be seen more fully in love by the very members of Christ's body so that by the time we reach Good Friday and find ourselves at the foot of the cross, we will be even more ready to let ourselves be seen and loved by our merciful Savior who would extend to us his infinitely powerful and beautifully redemptive grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.